How will the world meet growing energy demand while reducing emissions? What technology, human capital, policy, and education is needed to make the energy transition a reality? What are the myths and hard truths about all forms of energy, our environment, and our new economy? The Voices of Energy sets out to explore these questions with the people at the heart of making these changes a reality. We'll go from conversation to application by focusing on actionable strategies that will drive the world and our industry to a new era. I'm Katie Maynard, founder and CEO of Ally Energy, and this is the Voices of Energy. I want to welcome Dr. Daniel Kamen, who is a professor of energy at the University of California, Berkeley, with parallel appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, where he serves as chair, the Goldman School of Public Policy, where he directs the Center of Environmental Policy and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. Dan is the founding director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory and was the director of Transportation Sustainability Research Center from 2007 to 2015. He was then appointed by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in April of 2010 as the first energy fellow of the Environment and Climate Partnership for the Americas Initiative. He began service at the Science Envoy for U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry in 2016, but resigned over President Trump's policies in August 2017. Welcome to the Voices of Energy, Dan. We're so happy to have you. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So John Kerry has been named in the new administration. What is John Kerry going to bring to energy, climate policy to the United States? Well, he's going to bring a huge amount. Obviously, he served as senator. He served as secretary of state, which are monumental in their own sake. But he was also the key U.S. architect of the Paris Climate Accord. And a less talked about, but I would say very significant follow-on agreement, the Kigali Accords, which essentially extended the Paris Accords into some industrial areas and areas of refrigeration. So he brings a huge amount of gravitas, both in terms of his diplomatic skills, but also all the connections that really led to the Paris Climate Agreement being the turning point. And I say turning point because nations promised a huge amount. We have yet to deliver on that, but having one of the key architects of it as President-elect Biden's climate envoy to the world is an absolutely brilliant way to draw on that expertise and to continue it and to really show to the world that the U.S. is back in the saddle as a key player in terms of not only making and hopefully now sticking with agreements, but also documenting what we do domestically to really show that we are putting our money, our innovation, our climate and social justice chops where we need to domestically so we can have that international voice. So I am I am thrilled that he is in this unique new role. Thanks for that perspective. So my next question is, people criticize the Paris Accord. One, can you define it in simple terms to the average person? What is the Paris Accord? And secondly, is it more than just a statement? You know, we hear a lot about how it's just a bunch of statements, nobody's complying, is it a bunch of hot air? So one, what is it? And two, is it real? 
So it's real and it's substantive. And the, um, the only tragedy is that because of what the U.S. did, it has not yet lived up to that full mandate. So what the Paris Agreement was, was the first time that the international community got together and said, not only are we going to do something about climate, but we're going to do something about climate in a way that makes it workable for countries in different positions. And by that, what I mean is that prior agreements had all been you sign up to deploy a certain amount of clean energy or to protect forests. And it was very much a effort to build a traditional treaty. The Kyoto Protocol was part of that, some other meetings that didn't go as well. But what happened in the run-up to Paris was really world-changing. The U.S. and China said that we recognize we're the two biggest emitters and the two biggest consumers of energy. So we're going to set an agreement among the two countries. And Secretary of State Kerry was integral to that effort. What happened there was to say that the United States would cut its emissions by one-third by 2025, the so-called clean power plan under President Obama, and China would peak their emissions by 2030. Of course, the U.S. has not held its part of the deal because Trump then walked away from the Paris Agreement. China has kept their part of the deal. They are still on pace to peak their emissions by 2030, and they announced in September that they will go to carbon neutrality by 2060. Now, what President-elect Biden has said is that we're going to have a zero-carbon electricity sector by 2035. He jumped this dramatically forward in time, and we will be carbon neutral as a country by uh, 2050. And the reason why I'm so excited about the Paris Agreement and getting Secretary of State and now Climate Czar Kerry back in this position is because when the U.S. pulled out, it really took the immediacy and the push off of the Paris climate agreements for many countries. Now, what Paris says in its specific form initially was, we have to work together, protect forests, make agriculture smarter, go to green energy, protect indigenous peoples, put together a package where each country does the parts of it that make sense for their trajectory. So the U.S. goes hard into clean energy, but ideally, the Congo and Brazil, if they had a different president, would go in hard for tropical forest protection. So it was more of a agreement to do what your country can do to meet this goal. The goal was to keep uh, our total warming under two degrees Celsius by mid-century. And since Paris, all the rest of the countries of the world, except for the United States, said that's not good enough. We need to be at 1.5 and no more. And since we've already warmed the world by about 1.1, we don't have much headroom left. So Paris is an agreement where a few countries, Morocco and the Gambia, they are on pace. They have done enough to be on that trajectory. Other countries have not done enough, and it's largely because other countries were looking to be a partner with the United States. China, as I said, has moved ahead. They've set a new target, but it's still it's still an aggressive one. A number of other countries were expecting U.S. leadership involvement to move us forward. And when Trump moved away from that, we hit a stumbling block. A number of countries, though, have now redoubled their efforts. They're excited the U.S. will be back in the game. We expect both investment and the kind of commitments that President like Biden has said we will do. And those are really the cards that 
now climate envoy, Kerry, will bring back to those international negotiations. Awesome. So I, I got to ask this. I know you'll answer it. What is your view on the oil and gas industry's push towards a greener environment? What do you think that you know? many of the companies have made investments, many of the companies have made statements, companies like BP completely reinventing their businesses yeah. at the, at the, the cost of, of losing um, share price. What's your view on this? Where is the oil and gas industry? Do you think the oil and gas industry is real in its investment? And do you think it's going to pan out? Well, I mean, the question of real or not is, I think, the, the, the critical feature. As you pointed out, we've seen a number of oil majors, principally European ones, saying they're going to transition over and they're going to make clean energy a larger and larger part of their portfolio. I actually think that the comment that President-elect Biden said is really the operative term. In the final debate with Trump, he said that the U.S. oil and gas industry needs to transition. That doesn't mean overnight it needs to develop entire new wings. It says over this next 15 years, we're going to work with the oil and gas industry so that the expertise, the technical skills, the ability to work with large infrastructure all begins this transition. And by the end of that 15 years, they're there. And what that means to me is that the push into hydrogen is a huge opportunity for oil and gas to utilize a lot of expertise, infrastructure, the ability to do onshore and offshore technologies to make hydrogen the energy carrier going forward. And that's a huge opportunity because you do need to be a big infrastructure company like our oil and gas majors are to pull it off. It's everything from changing our refineries to producing hydrogen, to doing offshore hydrogen production at massive wind farms that can send electricity when demand is high, but hydrogen when electricity demand is low, such as at night. And it also means becoming a bigger, bigger part of the story for geothermal energy and for carbon capture and storage. And that's a hugely rich and hugely profitable agenda. And so I see a huge number of opportunities, but the operative word is making good on that transition. And that is really need to see business plans that think through a decade and a half, two decade strategy to become the world leaders in these areas. And we've seen other companies do it. We are seeing some of the Chinese oil and gas companies. We've seen some of the Norwegian companies. We've seen BP all highlight how they can be the leading entities in innovation and deployment of those parts of the clean energy system for which they're already well adapted. And again, I would start with geothermal, hydrogen, and carbon capture and storage as the, as the prime places to plug in. So I have to tell you, living in Texas and listening into the debate and a lot of concern with the comments from President-elect Biden on fracking, on the elimination of fracking, I really want to get your perspective so it's clear. Is the oil and gas industry going away? Will we see lots of job loss? There's a huge fear right now in this country that we're going to lose a lot of great talent, that we're going to lose a lot of great paying jobs. I know that jobs are important to the Democrats, and I know that they're important, really, to, to everyone. everyone. Right? It's, it's the heart of our economy. 
What do you think the administration is doing about workforce of the future for energy, which is obviously something we're real interested in? So I actually, so it's interesting. I actually think that the economic opportunities, the high paying jobs, the expansion of the sector are actually all opportunities that are now on the table for the current oil and gas industry. And I say that for a couple reasons. One is that we know from detailed studies over decades that per dollar invested, there's actually more jobs available in clean energy than there are in fossil energy. And that's not due to some complicated economics. It's really because as you push to clean energy, you are pushing to more investments in people, which means salaries and more jobs, and technical know-how and systems integration and less into the raw materials, the oil and gas and coal in the ground. You're basically investing in people and companies as opposed to a raw resource. What that means is that a larger and larger fraction of the funds are going to go into salaries, more jobs, et cetera. Now, the mantle of taking advantage of that then falls to the private sector. And so I don't think we're going to see job loss of oil and gas overseas. In fact, we're seeing the same turn down and transition we've already talked about in Europe. China is now committed very heavily to it. The real opportunity here is, again, to utilize that expertise. And I mentioned already hydrogen and geothermal and carbon capture and storage, which is essentially the infrastructure of the fossil fuel industry repurposed to bury carbon securely underground. There's other areas, too. We are going to need a huge amount of energy storage technology. That's everything from molten salt technology to potentially compressed air using underground former oil and gas caverns and areas to store energy by compressing air in those caverns to investing in fuel cells, nickel metal hydride batteries, high temperature technologies, flow batteries. All of these things look very similar in terms of infrastructure to oil and gas. And as you shift the economy to clean energy. Again, it means that we're going to be spending less of these dollars on the resource itself, on the oil, the coal, the gas, and more and more on people and companies. And so when I look at the job potential for the big U.S. oil and gas companies, I actually see job growth as a possibility if they really embrace this process. And we're seeing examples in Europe. In the UK, Humber, major former oil and gas company, is becoming the hub of Britain's largest hydrogen-powered industrial center. And they're talking about offshore hydrogen generation from wind, brought onshore, stored as hydrogen, used in industrial and chemical engineering processes. That's everything that the Texas and Louisiana oil and gas industry is all about. And so I do think that there is a need to recognize this change is going to mean new opportunities in new areas. But I actually see it as job growth for the companies that get on board. Great. Two more questions for you. So the first is, Texas sees itself as the energy capital. And obviously, California has done a lot around innovation. How can these two great states come together to power this this new future. You live in California. I'm a little biased. I'm down here in Texas. I'm seeing a lot of investment in this area. It's a more favorable 
business environment as a Quite business a owner? And how maybe would that, that regulatory environment hold California back in this transition? Where do you see Texas and, and California playing a role in the, in the future of energy? Well, it's interesting you say that you look at California with some jealousy, because I look at Texas with jealousy, because Texas is primed for this transition already. Texas has done relatively little on large-scale solar compared to its incredible solar capacity in the West and the South. But Texas is already national leader in wind power. And the ability to expand that further and to be the hub of offshore wind and potentially offshore solar is something where I look at you guys. You have a much more favorable offshore wind regime in some ways than we do. The Gulf of Mexico is perfect for wind. We actually have great wind off California, but with very deep water, very challenging issues of mooring, floating turbines. Texas and the Gulf is an easier, none of it's easy. It's an easier build than the California situation. And you're right. Texas has a more favorable regulatory environment in a number of ways. And so when I look at these components of the clean energy future, again, I see carbon capture and storage playing a role going forward if the oil and gas companies step up and show we can do it at scale, at cost, securely. But I also see large amounts of storage and the fact that ERCOT is a well-run model of how to do energy integration at scale means that Texas could absolutely be kind of a model for how to pull these features together. Great increase in solar. You know, I whenever I fly into Houston, it always pains me a bit. I fly over rooftop after rooftop, both individual homes and big box stores, and I see far too little solar. And that's an, that's an opportunity to build out that industry on existing infrastructure. It's jobs intensive. It is the least cost form of energy today. And we're going to need more and more integration of solar, big energy storage. I know some Texas companies getting into wind turbines, not the traditional kind you see, but actually it looks like a passive box. It sits on a rooftop. It's the wind running through it, you don't see blades turning, but we're talking about office buildings, we're talking about rural wind farms. And then again, it is pretty clear that our management of the energy system is gonna require some significant ramp up in carbon capture and storage. There's widely different views on it, but if the oil majors say, we can do this and they demonstrate they can do it at cost. It's a huge opportunity because we've waited too long to start. We are going to need this carbon negative push to be part of the equation. So I see all of those things as a part of the story where Texas is actually well positioned. And in fact, what I'm hoping is that we've now seen California first and then New York state commit to zero carbon goals in the future. I actually think that if Texas were to do that, something you would not have said 10 years ago, that the the, the flow of investor um, interest that we see in Silicon Valley today would be kind of a natural partner for all of these Texas big energy companies to become big players in a way that we simply don't see in California and, and, and Texas is really a prime hub for. So all of that is why I actually think this is kind of a boon if the companies take this moment of transition seriously. Well, you can be jealous of, of Texas. I'll always be jealous of California weather, 
I will not be jealous of prices and housing and how it's wildfires and earthquakes. And well, and wildfires, but you can't be you can't be jealous of our our floods here. We have our flood challenges. Sure. My belief is actually the the both states offer a lot of opportunity. But obviously, the academic, the research, the innovation that comes out of Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. I like to call it, you know, Wall Street meets Smith Street down um, here in Houston, you know, meets uh, Palo Alto, where all of the um, mm-hmm. the great ideas come from. So my last question for you is put yourself in the shoes of either a student or someone with less than five years of experience in oil and gas. We often get the question what does my future look like? What should I be thinking about? What are maybe one, two, three things that you would say to someone young in the industry trying to figure out what their path is? Yeah, I mean, the opportunities are really interesting here. First of all, each of the technology areas I talked about, from carbon capture to the fuel cell world, which is basically electrochemistry, and the opportunity to think much differently about the benefits of environmental stewardship and justice. These are all huge growth areas for people young in their careers. One of the really exciting commitments that President Mike Biden has said is that climate justice is going to be a core component. And that means working directly with poor communities in Texas and the rest of the country to integrate clean energy systems into infrastructure. That's an opportunity for jobs, community revitalization. Those are opportunity areas that I actually think that the that the current big oil and gas companies will take on because there is a, a legacy of stewardship. We have programs in Montana like Well-Capped, which are efforts to make sure that the oil and gas wells are well-managed. That is a reinvestment in communities. As we turn towards clean energy, and remember, President like Biden has not said that fracking will be outlawed. That is actually, he said, he said the opposite. He said, I'm not in any way putting the brakes on it. What I'm putting the brakes on is new investments that don't open up clean energy opportunities. And that's where I think it intersects with young people in the field. It does mean that thinking about carbon capture, energy storage, community investment, these are areas that are that are huge growth areas as we go forward. And because they link together the energy industry and social justice opportunities, I actually think it's a way for for the biggest oil companies and people who want to make a career in those to really look at new ways to partner with communities. That's going to be a huge part of rebuilding the economy. Wow. Well, look, I want to thank you for all your time. You know, I read a lot. Uh, I know that you contribute a lot to the international media space around energy and environment. I think it's an exciting time too. You've written like 12 books. You've been all, I mean, you're great. You're just such a great resource, a great voice in the energy space. And I hope you'll uh, come back and jam with us in the future. And hey, here's a toast to 2021. Um, We made it and it's an exciting future for energy, climate and the environment. Absolutely. Thank you for me on. I'm happy to be back.